white working class Americans are dying. If there's one socioeconomic issue that cuts hard into the socio part of that word and also probably played a key role in electing Donald Trump as president, this is it. Anne Case and Angus Deaton, the married academic couple who brought this issue to the forefront, have just issued a follow-up paper that tries to provide some answers on why death rates among less educated white Americans have skyrocketed in the past 15 years. That's right, and we're about to speak with Professor Case to discuss her work. You know, we usually don't think about economics as a life or death matter, but for a large group of Americans, there's no other way to describe it. It's Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Economics at Bloomberg in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. Dan, you know, we've covered this issue several times before, and it really is one of the most important issues that we can discuss in our roles as economic journalists. We've done the micro version of this issue with our interview with J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. We've even had our guest, Anne Case, on the show before. But it's really worthy of returning now to the macro issue that she and her husband have studied so well. And Scott, we haven't heard the end of it. J.D. Vance was in the news just recently. He's returning to Ohio, where much of the book is set, where he's going to be involved in, among other things, looking for venture capital ideas from the local community. All right. Well, now to our guest. Anne Case is Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University, where she is the Director of the Research Program in Development Studies. Among her many honors is being awarded the Kenneth J. Arrow Prize in Health Economics from the International Health Economics Association. As we mentioned, she was on our podcast almost a year ago, and we're very glad to have her back again today, joining us from Princeton, New Jersey. Hello, Anne. Hi, it's good to be with you. So you finished the previous paper on this topic, I think almost two years ago. What kinds of findings do you have now that you didn't have before? We really wanted to drill down um, into the into the question of what is it that is killing these people, either slowly with alcohol or with drugs or quickly with a gun. And um, what we found was a really strong... Um, synchronization between these death rates and all sorts of other dysfunction for uh, whites with less than a college degree. So I think the first, the first big difference is that we've actually focused a lot more of our attention to people who haven't gone to college. Um, people with a BA are continuing to see their um, mortality rates drop. Um, while people with less than a BA, so that's even people with some college but not a four-year degree, are um, having a much harder time. They report poorer health. They report more pain. They report that um, they have a lot more social anxiety. They're a lot less likely to get married. Uh, they Their cohabitations are, are fragile. Um, and we think, though, the root cause of this could be and this is, again, you know, this is just that it's consistent with the evidence that from the time they uh, left high school and entered the labor market, 
their labor market opportunities are really much poorer than the generation that came before. And Professor Case, Anne, we're not just talking about a mortality rate that's rising while others in the United States fall. There's a global phenomenon whereby mortality rates are falling in some of the most unlikely places, yet for this group of Americans, it's going in the wrong direction. Throughout the developing world, mortality rates um, are falling, income levels are by and large rising, but it's just not, this group is alone, not just in the United States, but really in the planet. Well, certainly in the rich world. You could name me your favorite European country, and I could pretty much guarantee you that over this period that mortality rates in middle age were falling at about 2% a year. And that's the, that is the rate that used to characterize the, the white working class that we're talking about. So terrific progress against heart disease. Antihypertensives just made a huge difference. People stopped smoking, so both heart disease and cancer rates fell. But two things happened to this group. One is that we stopped making progress on heart disease. So heart disease mortality flatlined after decades of progress. And because it flatlined, it brought to to light the fact that mortality from these causes, causes that the medical community has a much harder time knowing how to deal with, um, actually drove mortality rates overall up. And life expectancy came down in the U.S., and it came down because of this group. Children are doing well, the elderly are doing well, but middle-aged whites are actually having a hard enough time now that it's um, affected overall life expectancy. Now, one thing you do in your latest paper that wasn't in the previous one is uh, look around the United States and talk about how this phenomenon is common across almost all geographies in the United States with white Americans with less than a bachelor degree uh, having higher death rates uh, than before. Is it possible to disaggregate this phenomenon from geography at all? Is there any difference in mortality rates between urban and rural areas? I I know uh, there's a handful of exceptions to this uh, trend, as you uh, pointed out before. Scott, are you really asking whether it's concentrated in Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Michigan? Well, it's really, (laughs) those happen to be Trump states, but it's really all over the country. I mean, you pointed out Utah, but was there any, any differences that you could tell? It's interesting because the press has picked it up in different ways. Um, let me let me not answer the question immediately, but just to say that um, a lot of the headlines are dying white men. And indeed, that is true. Um, some of the headlines want to focus on the fact that it's happening to women, and that's happening too. But it's it's really not a difference between men and women. It's really the difference cuts between education groups. And as, and some of the headlines also want to make it a story about Appalachia. And it's certainly happening there, but there's no part of the country that has not been touched by this. 
And so we are hoping in the next tranche of research that we do to use the fact that we've divided the country up into about a thousand small areas. And we're hoping that we can piece this together better in terms of local economic conditions. That work still remains to be done. But I can, I can tell you that for, say, whites in age 45 to 54, there are only three states in the country where mortality rates fell between, say, 1999 and 2015. And those were California, New York, and New Jersey. Was there any reason for that that you figured out yet, or is that for your next part of research? There's more work to be done on that. There's also a small piece of the I-95 corridor uh, between uh, Dan and Washington um, that goes all the way through New York and up to Boston. And we think that that's been protected by the fact that along that northeast I-95 corridor, uh, educational attainment is much higher. But I, I want to go back also to the question about Europe, because um, many countries in Europe were terribly hit by the Great Recession, right? We think about Spain um, being so hard hit. But during the recession and to the end of the recession, actually, mortality rates fell in Spain and in Italy and in Greece, and they fell in the countries that weren't hard hit, too. So... Um, it, it doesn't look like the Great Recession actually had the kind of um, effect that we saw in the U.S., but actually it was, it was already well entrenched in the U.S. before the Great Recession ever hit. What role does the expanded social safety net that many people associate with Western European countries played in that divergence? That is a very good question. And again, this is something that's going to be um, a focus of our attention in the next part of the work here. I don't have a good answer for you yet. It could be some combination of universal health care and stronger safety nets that protect people when they lose their jobs, um, that actually make sure that there's money to keep body and soul together. Um, it could be that that's why when the Great Recession hit Europe, we didn't see the same thing happen. But I, I, I can't tell you that that's what happened for sure, because if you look in the U.S., blacks and Hispanics face the same social safety net that whites do, and yet mortality rates continue to fall for blacks and Hispanics in the U.S. Do other countries have the same prevalence of the opioid epidemic that we have in the States? No, indeed. I mean, and that's, we think of the opioids as being a real accelerant to what happened, although death rates were rising from suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol-related liver diseases well before the introduction of very strong um, prescription um, opioids in the U.S. market. So we can we can go all the way back to 1990 and look what was happening. And the trend really didn't change much with the introduction, for example, of OxyContin, although it did pick up some. So we do think that it's an accelerant, but we don't think it's a root cause of what's going on. I was in the audience when Professor Deaton presented to the National Association for Business Economics in D.C. earlier this month. He highlighted the relative decline in the strength of trade unionism and in traditional religion, meaning the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, versus a new wave of religion that was very individual in its focus. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, we're, we're actually looking at what gives structure to people's lives. 
And historically, it would be the case that a, a, a man might be able to follow his father and his grandfather into a trade. And it would be a trade where the pay was good, the benefits were good, there was on-the-job training, if you work hard, you could move up. You could have a middle-class life for your family. Those sorts of jobs are gone. On the religion side, the legacy churches, it's not that people are, are less likely to re report a religion, but the legacy churches, the ones you mentioned, Catholic Church or Protestant churches, have given way to more seeking churches, which are much more individual-oriented, but provide less structure. And then marriages, um, it, if you look at the birth cohort of 1950, two-thirds of them were married by age 30. If you go then to the birth cohort of 1960, only, um, no, I'm sorry, 75% of the ones born in 1950, two-thirds of the ones born in 1960, only half of the cohort born in 1970 is married at age 30. So, like, if you think of marriage, job, religion as giving people structure in their lives, all of those have have sort of uh, collapsed. Um, and we think that that leaves people vulnerable as well um, to despair. And so much of what you just said sounds a lot like the economic side of what uh, J.D. Vance talks about in his personal story that he shares in Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, obviously, he, he his book has gotten pretty wide play, been widely recognized. I'm curious if you've had a chance to read the book or uh, meet uh, Mr. Vance or, or talk with him, what you think of his story and how that uh, connects with the research that you've been doing. I think it, I think it connects quite strongly. And I, I, I read with a lot of interest that he's moving back um, to Columbus, Ohio, and wants to actually uh, put his body and his family um, in the sort of where the heart of the problem is. I think that's that's really noble and that's really brave. Um, I because we currently don't know how this is going to end. I don't have for you, aside from turn off that tap for strong opioids for chronic pain, you know, I don't have like a, a checklist of things that if we do this, we can actually turn this problem around. And it's essential that we do that. And I think J.D. Vance being willing to put himself in the line and say, let me see what I can do is... Um, a, a terrific thing, and I, I, I would encourage more people uh, to do that. Aside from being a great read, one of the reasons J.D.'s book got such buzz was people were trying to explain the economic roots of Donald Trump's support in states not normally associated with going Republican at the presidential level. So, and. Paul Krugman would put this rather bluntly, so I guess I'll just paraphrase him, and he said this publicly. Why then, if a social safety net is so important and unions are so important, why did these people then vote against their own economic self-interest? I think that Bernie Sanders on the left and Donald Trump on the right recognized that slowly working-class America was collapsing, 
and that no one in Washington was representing their interests. So I think that both the Bernie Sanders phenomenon and the Trump phenomenon are about people pulling a lever to say, we're not being heard, we're not being recognized, um, our, our wages have been falling, we're not seeing um, a ladder up for our children, and we, this, is what, this is the way in which we think we can um, let people in Washington know that this is not working for us. Well, they both certainly identified an issue, though their prescriptions were quite different. But they were both out to protect the working class, I think. Yet there was also a platform uh, that specifically said uh, repeal and replace. Again, why would these people vote, as Krugman asks, to lose their health insurance? Why would they do that? I think it's the same reason why just having a social safety net in the U.S. that resembled that in Western Europe may not work here. Um, The U.S., is a a country, I think, where there's a a large number of people who believe that it's up to me to take care of my family and it's up to my neighbor to do the same for his and that uh, we don't want a handout. I mean, we have a... Just we have a fishing guide in Montana where we go every summer who um, is a veteran who fought in the the second Iraq war. And um, he needs medical care, but he won't go to the VA hospital. And we ask why, and he said, well, around here, we don't take handouts. And even, and I was just aghast. And I mean, we said, even though you fought for this country, and these are benefits that you deserve, and he said, no, no, we don't take charity. So I think there's actually um, a lot of resistance about giving up the you know, individual sense of, of, of self and purpose uh, to a collective. And I think that that is a, a, a block we're going to come up against over and over. It really is a hallmark of how a large number of Americans think and behave. So uh, on the election issue, have you or, or are you going to cross-reference Uh, some of your geographic results with the vote count in 2016 and 2012 to see if the death rates correlate in any way with um, voting for Trump or Clinton? I have to say the day after the election, I pulled down the the county level um, uh, votes for Clinton versus Trump, and they correlate extremely strongly, a 0.42, if that means anything to you, with um, uh, mortality rates of whites in middle age. One being the perfect correlation. One being the perfect correlation, but 0.42 being very strong in any thing that looks in, in a cross-section. But a lot of people have correlated Trump votes with um, things that are also related, you know, uh, the extent to which um, manufacturing jobs were lost, um, for example. And I think they're, that's all of a piece. One of the disturbing things we're finding is that this is a problem that's getting worse with every successive birth cohort. So it, so the 
people born in 1980 are having a harder time than people born in 1970 who are having a harder time than people born in 1960. So it's not just the baby boomers moving through and that everything's going to be fine at the tail end of that. It's it's way into Gen X now as well. And it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. The, the phrase you use in your paper is cumulative disadvantage. These are things that add up over the course of a person's life, not getting a bachelor's degree, not getting a good job, not getting married, and so on, until they end in, in deaths of despair, uh, as you call it. Is the bottom line here that the U.S. economy has been changing dramatically, shifting away more and more from manufacturing to a services-oriented economy, and in terms of education and skills, that a certain cohort that just happens to be many white uh, working-class Americans is not keeping up with these changes? It's, the data are entirely consistent with that story. So we want to pull that apart further and see the extent to which we can quantify that. But yes, I, the, the date, that's what the data seem to suggest. And one of the things we've also found is that what we call return to experience has fallen in the labor market. That generally, the older you get, the more experience you have, the more efficient you are at your job, the higher your wages become. And we're not seeing that same return to experience for younger and younger birth cohorts. And I think if you go to a service economy, to a gig economy, where there's not that much experience necessary for some of these jobs, um, people don't see themselves in 10 years' time having moved up the ladder. And that is, I think, an incredibly serious problem. What, what we do about education, not everybody wants to go to college. Not everybody um, has the wherewithal to go to college. But we've got to change our education system in some way, personal opinion, um, so that um, we provide the skills for people that, that they'll be able to use in the 21st century economy. And I think the schools currently just aren't keeping up with the changes that are necessary. You know, Anne, over the centuries, as you know, economic cycles rise and fall. If you take these manufacturing uh, areas of Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, three or four hundred years ago, it was all agriculture. And before that, land was owned by the indigenous inhabitants of this continent. Similarly, when the Industrial Revolution came to northeastern England, the uh, cotton mill and the spinning wheel was replaced. Sure, Luddites busted up a few workshops in Manchester and Liverpool, but those cities rose again on uh, steel, shipbuilding, pop music. <laughs> Why should we be so head up, wound up and concerned about this group, this slice of industry in this portion of the country? I would say we should be concerned because these people are dying in middle age where they have no business dying. Their despair is actually palpable. That at any given age, year on year, they report me more mental distress. They report, um, you know, poor psychological health. And we, I think, if we want to be a country, one country, 
we're going to have to find a way to weave ourselves back together again. And it's a depressing issue, but it's one that is not going to be going away anytime soon and one that we will surely be watching for years and generations to come. Thank you so much for taking the time again to be on Benchmark today. Thank you. So, Dan, is this ever going to change? Is this issue, is there anything that you think can be done to actually reverse this uh, incredible increase in, in the death rate among white working class Americans? The forces at work almost seem as profound as the statistics that Anne cited. I tried to get her to talk a little bit about this issue she raised at the start, where it might end. And there was one thing she said just in the closing there that startled me, and we should have her back on to talk about this. She said, if we want to remain one country. Did you notice that? It, now that you're pointing out again, it, it is quite a profound statement, yes. The implication being that this doesn't end well. If you have the death rate cleave off so, in, so prominently from the rest of the country, uh, this is obviously more than just an economic issue for our statistics. This is, this is life and death, and it could very well be a, a, a change in the republic that makes news in more ways beyond these statistics. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher, or wherever you might enjoy finding podcasts. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you are at? At Moss underscore Eco. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of podcast is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.